1: Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
2: It is Monday, September 6th, 2021, Labor Day in the United States. You're listening to the best of The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Recently, I spoke with Ben Shapiro, friend of the program, editor emeritus at TheDailyWire.com and host of The Ben Shapiro Show. He had a new book out, The Authoritarian Moment. We talked about it. Listen. With me now is Ben Shapiro, editor emeritus of TheDailyWire.com, host of The Ben Shapiro Show, He's a New York Times bestselling author. New book out today, The Authoritarian Moment, How the Left Weaponized America's Institutions Against Dissent. Ben, good to talk to you again.
3: Hey, good to talk to you, Guy. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing all right, although when I read elements of your book and I've skimmed through some of it, it's hard to really feel like I'm embracing the happiness in our happy hour because (laughs) it's a fairly disturbing thesis and part of the reason that i'm dyspeptic is i think you're broadly correct give folks just the elevator pitch for the authoritarian movement and what you're arguing
3: Uh, so in the authoritarian moment i'm basically arguing that we all and i mean pretty much everyone in the country with the exception of people on the far political left we feel as though we are being ostracized from mainstream society we have all of the major institutions are arrayed right against us. It feels as though corporations are arrayed right against us. The universities are arrayed right against us. The media and social media are arrayed right against us. Even our supposed scientific authorities are arrayed right against us. And in the authoritarian moment, I talk about why that has happened, why it is that so many of these institutions have been renormalized and how they were renormalized. I also talk about how to fight back against that and re-renormalize the institutions or bring them back to normal. But, you know, the, the simple fact that people on the right feel under assault, that is substantiated by some pretty significant evidence. I mean, the fact is that all of the major institutions of the society are now being wielded against people who don't engage in the sort of group think the left wants us to engage in. And again, every bipolar data, every single subgroup in the United States feels it with the exception of the radical left that's in control of it.
2: And the radical left, they're sort of safe until they're not. This is what's kind of fascinating about the dynamics over there. If you stick with every single rule, and the rules change constantly, then you're safe. But the moment you wander off the script, they turn on each other, right? The revolution eats itself is the old phrase, and it is playing out in technicolor. It's it's very obvious. It happens all the time. Some of the converts, frankly, to at least old-school liberalism, if not conservatism, are leftists who have gotten burned by this.
3: That's exactly right. I think the, the key to understand about the changing rules, which we feel every single day, right? One day you say something like, this is completely inoffensive. And then within a week, it just radically changes into something offensive. So, for example, Amy Coney Barrett uses the term sexual preference in a, in a Senate hearing. And literally that day, Maisie Hirono says, you know, that's an offensive term. And then Dictionary.com changes the term sexual preference to refer to how it's offensive. <laughs> so the, the rules are are malleable and shifting that infinitum, But the shifting is the point, right? Well, and and by the, the way, just, just one other sure. example
2: that I've enjoyed recently is when Mary Catherine Hamm and I wrote End of Discussion, sort of on some similar themes six years ago, we listed this lexicon of left-wing terminology to help people understand what they were, what they were saying and what they meant and what the rules supposedly were at the time. And one of the terms that we singled out was triggering and trigger warning – and now that is, in fact, triggery unto itself because of gun violence. They can't say it anymore. So that's been stricken from the woke dictionary for its own new
3: sinful nature. I mean, it it spins your head. It's insane. And, and it's the spinning of the head that's the phenomenon they're looking for. The goal is to make you dizzy, not to be consistent. And I think conservatives make a fairly large-scale mistake when we say, well, you know, their standards are just inconsistent. Yes, of course their standards are inconsistent. Right? Every single major leftist argument has is right with inconsistency. But that's the whole point. You're supposed to hold two completely opposing thoughts in your head at the exact same time. Like you're supposed to believe, for example, that gender is both a social construct and completely immutable. Right? You're supposed to believe that race is both a social construct, but also racial essentialism is real. These are things that are in direct contravention of one another. And yet, if you don't hold both of those thoughts in the same time and mirror those thoughts, then you've violated the rules. And this means that we can force you to some sort of now a struggle session to keep your career. It's, the, the whole point here is not that they wish to enlighten you to a, a wiser way of viewing the world. The whole point is you obey or we will come after you. Yeah. And the struggle it, sessions, it's very successful.
2: The struggle sessions really are... I think it's a perfect way of describing it, flashing back to the communist revolution in China and these bouts of self-flagellation and groveling apology. And often that is not even good enough. Ben, here's the thing, though. We've got a number of listeners here, and I hear from them regularly, who are independents, maybe left-leaning as well. And I can imagine some of the arguments that they might be formulating as they listen to the two of us talk, because we're both conservatives. One of them might be, "Okay, here we go. We've got uh, Benson and Shapiro whining about the left again and all these rules and how they're targeted and just victims of everything. I thought conservatives were bootstraps people. I thought conservatives were against whining and against victimhood. What's your response to someone who might frame your argument that way?
3: I mean, what what I would say is that, you know, when you are actually being targeted by overtly by, by institutions, at that point, it's no longer you know, kind of self-perpetuated feelings of victimhood. At that point, you actually have to evidence the victimhood. And I think you can see that when you're talking about people actively being fired for their politics or, or being socially ostracized or being treated as, as unhuman or inhuman, rather, online for, for their particular perspective. In other words. Yes, it's a complaint. Also, it does have a solution, and that solution, one is sort of a bootstrap solution, and one is a collective action solution. This is one of the things I talk about in the book, is sort of solutions to this, not just the whining. The, the sort of bootstrap solution is, okay, so we should create alternatives. Right? I mean, we, we have created media alternatives. We've been very successful in that sphere, conservatives have. Um, but we may have to actually do this in the realm of neutral service providers. So, for example, if PayPal decides that all of a sudden they're going to be engaging with the ADL and policing what they call quote-unquote hate speech, and that starts to creep outside the boundaries Uh, sort of normal, we're going to go after actual criminal activity and into you say a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Therefore, PayPal will not allow you to engage in service. Well, then we're going to have to start our own PayPal. Is that my ideal? No, I would much prefer the sort of second solution that I propose, which is that people mobilize on behalf of neutrality. I think there has to be there's no such thing as a radical moderate, which is one of the great tragedies of politics. But there has to be uh, at least a coalition of people ranging from the moderate left to the conservative right to yep. say it's important for us to have these neutral spaces. And if you're not going to engage in neutrality, well, then we're going to be just as intransigent and just as loud as the radical left has been. What, what's really happened here is that a very small percentage of the population has mobilized massive institutions by relying on the both apathy and risk aversion of a lot of people who are in the middle and don't and really fear. want to fight. Well, and fear, for sure, for sure. And, but, but the fear really wouldn't even be the factor if there weren't so many people who were risk averse. Because how can 20 percent of an organization take over the entire direction politically of a neutral organization? The answer is you've got a bunch of people in the middle who just don't want to fight. Like they think, okay, well, you know, is it really that big an ask? Is it really worth the conflict? If they all just stood up at once and said no, then this would be over pretty quickly. And you you see that occasionally, every so often. You'll just say people say it's so easy, and yet it doesn't happen. I mean, Guy, you saw the other day. I I tweeted out, I think it was yesterday. That if you actually want to end polarization in the country, we can all do something very quickly, okay? We can all go online, all of us, right, left, center. Pick somebody who voted differently than you. Say they're a nice person and that you enjoy reading their work. Okay, and I had probably dozens of conservatives who immediately started tweeting out people who were center or center left or even far left. I don't know of anybody on the left who did it out, anybody on the right, which sort of demonstrates where things are at this moment. Ben, let's pause right
2: there. I want to follow up on that. Ben Shapiro on The Guy Benson Show. More with Ben right after this break. It's Labor Day in the USA, and you're listening to the best of The Guy Benson Show.
1: Guy Benson will be right back.
2: Happy Labor Day. Hope you're having a good long weekend. You're listening to the best of The Guy Benson Show. Ben, you were just talking about some solutions in terms of pushing back against the mob, quite frankly. This second solution that you mentioned, you and I have talked about this privately, offline, and it's not something that I am really inclined towards in terms of disposition or worldview. I don't like the idea of counter-boycotts and collective action and hounding people, but I'm sort of there because there have been a few different episodes that radicalized me, one of which was... Major League Baseball and the All-Star Game, robbing it from Atlanta for no good reason. And it's like, okay, if their loud, angry, marginal mob is going to be able to bully huge organizations and basically call the shots, I guess the rest of us have to figure out a way to bully them, not to do exactly what we want, just bully them into neutrality, which is your point. Yes. We don't need them to all be yep, right-wing and doing, pursuing politically conservative things. Just stay out of it.
3: Yeah, it's right. And, and there's a great kind of case in point as to what the left wants. The left doesn't want neutrality here. And the, the best sort of case I know of this is there's a company called Coinbase out of Silicon Valley. And Coinbase is a, it's a platform for trading cryptocurrency. And the head of the organization, uh, who tends, I think, toward the libertarian from what I understand, he put out an edict to his staffers that we are just not going to talk politics on the Slack channels at work. It's bad for it's bad for morale. It's bad for, you know, the, the sort of how the company operates. We're just not going to do politics at work. He got Unbelievable blowback from the left wing. 60 of his employees quit. Not because he said you have to mirror right-wing positions, but because he said we're just not going to talk politics at work. The left is is not interested in neutra- – they're, they're interested in destroying neutrality. If we have to mobilize in order to re-neutralize these, these institutions, then, frankly, I don't see that we have any other choice. It was funny yeah, and, the by the way, day, for, the, but, for the people who quit, let them walk. Like, right, exactly. Exactly. Like, if, totally if you want to go and, and, and I, be it,
2: woke in the workplace, find some – ultra woke company and you can go do that and hopefully people who are either like-minded in terms of our worldview or just don't want that stuff at work they can apply for those slots and hopefully be compensated handsomely and go do good work right i mean this is how yep we can use the marketplace to sort of shift at least the dynamics of this fight a little bit ben let me give you another point that some people might argue and i think that there's some merit to it as well critics on the left or in the center saying, okay, he's calling his book the authoritarian moment, he's going after the left, and maybe he's got a few solid points there, and the left is complicit in this, but isn't the right as well? I mean, look at what just happened in the election and January 6th, and a lot of people who seem to be untethered completely to the Constitution or factual information about elections i mean it is sort of scary out there in certain precincts on the right where it seems like authoritarian impulses are rather strong i know you address it a little bit in your book but just for the purposes of this conversation and people listening who might want to pick up the book and say okay there's some intellectual consistency here and honesty here what's your reply on that front
3: so, I mean, I begin the book with exactly that argument. The argument from the left is that authoritarianism on the right doesn't just exist. It's the existential threat to the country. And I think that there are certainly authoritarians on the right. I mean, I think January 6th was a bunch of people who are attempting to you know, overthrow the institutions of government. But the point there is that it was a giant failure. Anybody who says that January 6th was – that these, these idiots who ran into the Capitol building and now are all under arrest. this is a true threat to overthrow a 200 year old democracy that's insane i'm sorry that's just crazy okay the entire thing was over within four hours and the republicans were voting to certify the election in the senate the the real question is what is the greater threat to you like if you're worried about authoritarianism are you more worried about idiots running into the capitol building or are you more worried about every major institution in society that has essentially embraced a quash view? Uh, of politics. I mean, I'm more worried, frankly, about Amazon Web Services deplatforming de- parlor in the aftermath of January 6th than I am about failures of, of law enforcement to properly get on scene and, and prevent people from invading the Capitol building. All those people are going to jail. But I, I am deeply well, worried and about the people and the who fomented it and, and told the lies so, that yeah, led to the riot. Sure.
2: But and I think just to buttress your point a little bit, Ben, I am very concerned about extremism and authoritarianism and illiberalism on the right, and we see far too much of it, and I criticize it. But to underscore your point, it is much more insidious and dangerous on the left because these huge taste-making institutions in our society, from the media to culture to corporate America, they basically have the back of the illiberal forces on the left, or at least knuckle under to them. The media is often in full-throat in favor of authoritarian censorship and that sort of thing when it comes from the left, whereas all of those institutions sort of link arms passionately against right-wing authoritarianism with a lot of conservatives joining that fray and joining that battle, whereas when when the concerning tides are shifting in the other direction, the opposition to it, the resistance, if you will, to it feels a little lonely sometimes.
3: Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think that what we've seen is that authoritarianism is not unique to any one political creed. The question is whether major institutions in a society actually back it. And, and here I would actually ask the left, you know, their definition of racism is not just that, that racism is bad across the board. They say it's racism combined with power. That's really a problem. OK, well, if authoritarianism is bad, then isn't authoritarianism combined with with power? A much greater threat than just simple authoritarianism. Like, if you have a if you have an idiot online who's saying authoritarian things, or even if you have a president of the United States who says things that seem authoritarian, but then he doesn't have the institutional wherewithal to pull it off, right. is that is that more scary than entire institutions of both government and culture cramming down overt violations of rights?
2: Right. It's it's a question. If you're opposed to authoritarianism, which of course I am, which form of it is likeliest to succeed in its authoritarianism, given the constellation of power and influence in the country that might be prevailing? And I think to that question, there is one correct answer, and you've landed on it in your book, The Authoritarian Moment, which is on sale today. Ben, just a quick news of the day item. I've seen you tweeting up a storm about it. We've addressed it multiple times in the show already today, but the CDC... And their new guidance on masking for children in schools, for vaccinated adults. And it seems like a lot of this is being sold as we need to protect the children, even though there's virtually no science whatsoever behind it. And yet,
3: here we go again, and here we are. It's hard for me at this point not to think that the Center for Disease Control has, has become the Center for Totalitarian Control. There's no science to back this. I mean, none. uh, I was tweeting out the statistics earlier, and then people just tweet back at you, well, you don't care if people die. (laughs) Okay, I just gave you the statistics. So here are the actual statistics on this other stuff. So the CDC just said that if you're vaccinated, you should wear masks in your home with your children if they're under the age of 12 because they can't be vaccinated. We currently have, according to that same CDC... 337 people under the age of 18 who have died with COVID, not from COVID, with COVID, because a lot of those people have significant underlying conditions if they're children. That's out of a subpopulation in the United States of 75 million people. In that same period of time, 810 kids have died of pneumonia. If you're talking about the risks of vaccinated people dying of COVID because of breakthrough infections, according to the CDC, again I'm quoting their own staff, According to the CDC, 161 million Americans have been vaccinated. A grand total of 5,914 individuals in the United States have been, diagnosed, have, have been hospitalized with COVID or died from COVID. Okay, that means that your chances of even being hospitalized, not not dying, which is much lower, your chances of being hospitalized with COVID after having a vaccine are 1 in 27,223. And based on these probabilities, that you are that you 337 out of 75 million or 1 out of 27,223, you're supposed to mask up post-vaccination. No, it's, it's total nonsensical bullcrap.
2: Yeah, it's it's complete madness. And then they wonder, you know, why is there so little regard for the experts? Why won't people listen to us? And and I think that they just need to look right in the mirror when they ask that question, because the answer is staring at them. Ben Shapiro is editor emeritus of the Daily Wire. He's hosted the Ben Shapiro Show. His new book, on sale today, is the Authoritarian Moment: How the Left Weaponized America's Institutions Against dissent ben good luck with the book you always seem to do very well with these books so we want to help you succeed again and let's talk again soon sounds great thanks guy ben shapiro on the guy benson show we'll be right back i'm guy benson it's labor day and this is the best of the guy benson show labor day hope you're having a good long weekend you're listening to the best of the guy benson show i recently caught up with camille foster co-host of the fifth column podcast partner at freethink and we talked about some of the difficult and thorny complicated issues involving race schools pedagogy and critical race theory it was an illuminating conversation have a listen camille it is great to have you here how are you
4: guy i am doing great man great to talk to you
2: Likewise, and I have been following your work on Twitter and writing and commentary on issues surrounding race and critical race theory with great interest recently, and I know that you've been heavily involved in some of these battles, and I think what I'd love to do is start here, because we talk about these issues a lot. In fact, we got into some of it a little bit in the last hour as well. There seems to be a disagreement about how to even define critical race theory, And it feels like a lot of people on the left who may or may not recognize that the politics of this issue are pretty toxic for the left, they are trying to bog things down into a debate over technical definitions and the origins of critical race theory and saying conservatives are defining it too broadly and they're lying about what it is and they actually don't even want slavery taught in schools. There's so much conflation going on, whereas I kind of feel like a lot of conservatives who are talking about this, and not just conservatives, moderates, even left to center, people who are uncomfortable with what they're seeing, they know that it's not just, hey, we want slavery and Jim Crow taught in schools. That's not what's going on here. Critical race theory is an umbrella term that's been used to sort of capture a bunch of subsect issues and buzzwords, whatever you want to call them, intersectionality, race essentialism. It all goes into sort of this pot if you will, of critical race theory. If you can just maybe start off here by defining how you think about these terms and what terms apply when we're having these broader policy discussions.
4: Yeah, well, I think you did a really good job of setting a lot of that up. I mean, to to begin, let's just establish that the context we find ourselves in is we are in month 14 or 15 of what is now being called, um, I think, rather politely – like the racial reckoning in America, there is like general reordering of priorities around things related to issues of race. Words are being and concepts that we're all familiar with are being radically redefined, and a lot of battle lines are being drawn around sometimes old issues and in many instances new issues. And critical race theory is something that it's hard, as you as you described. It's really hard to explain exactly what it is because it means so many different things to different people. But it is definitely the sharp edge of America's culture war and the the battle over r- the racial reckoning. And I think critical race theory has a very precise, well-established meaning among a community of academics. But that's a small community, um, and generally, those people are on the left. It's this legal tradition. Um, about you know structural disadvantage and sense, no, notions of power, but in the context of this broader debate around things like education and K through 12, and you know criminal justice reform and all this other stuff, there is no such precise definition. Um, as you mentioned, conservatives are generally talking about kind of this dangerous brew as they see it of toxic ideas that, you know, demonize whiteness, that promote race essentialism, um, that include particular views on kind of the history of America and even the notion of America as, you know, not not necessarily a good and virtuous place, but a place that is built on uh, a history of injustice that currently has systems that perpetuate injustice and the only thing that we can possibly do, according to kind of the most passionate um, of advocates for critical race theory, so to speak, again, we're using it in that broader sense, is, like, tear the system down and start over again. Right. And plenty of conservatives are... And indoctrinate kids. Concern concerned about that. Yes, right, they want to indoctrinate, indoctrinate kids, kids at
2: the youngest age to sort of right. see the country the way that they see the country, and most of America doesn't see it that way and find it very toxic, which is why... I think we get so much of this, and we use this term probably too often, but I feel like it's mm-hmm. gaslighting, where the critical race theory, again, broadly defined, the advocates uh-huh. vacillate. I'm not the only person who's noticed this, but they fluctuate, mm-hmm. vacillate between, oh, it doesn't really exist. It's this very discreet concept only taught in law schools. It's not being taught in schools. You're all out of your minds. But also then saying, no, no, no. all of this stuff is extremely important and needs to be taught to children. And you're wrong, and if you disagree, then you are racist or certainly not anti-racist. And they kind of make each argument as it is convenient for them to do so, but they are Mm -hmm. mutually exclusive. And that's what I feel like Mm -hmm. a lot of people look at, and they feel like their head's spinning a little bit.
4: Yeah, well, there's a core group of people that are pushing rather dangerous ideas, I think, and that are interested in indoctrination broadly. And there are obviously really egregious examples of the worst manifestations of this stuff, where you'll find like kindergarten kids who are being exposed to really like ugly ideas um, where they're being asked to to sort of talk about their whiteness and to to confess their crimes with respect to their privilege and their inherent racism. Now, that's bad, but those are also extreme examples of something And I think it's really important to acknowledge the degree to which what happens in a culture war is always the opposing sides are kind of talking past one another. They're not engaging with, you know, the honest, sincere perspective of the the kind of moderate view on either side. They're generally engaging with the most hysterical, overwrought view on either side. And people on the left, I think, especially kind of the normies on the left who aren't terribly political, quite frankly, they don't have, in many instances, experiences with the worst forms of critical race theory in their classrooms. Like, what's happening in their classrooms is what's happening all over our society, this kind of reordering of priorities around racial things. And a lot of well-intentioned people who just want to do the right thing, who are kind of newly alive to this universe of concerns about racial justice and stuff, are just trying to get it right, so to speak. And They are genuinely, I think, in many instances, flummoxed by the outrage that they're seeing on the right. Like, we aren't having productive conversations about these issues. And I think that there is a general hysteria in the country right now, a hysteria that perhaps began on the left when people were saying, beginning about 13, 14 months ago, things like, oh, my God, there's a genocide on black people. The police are trying to, it's open season on black men. That is obviously absurd and hysterical. But in much the same way, I think there is a a prevailing sense amongst many conservatives and and it's being advanced by some conservative activists that there is this broad and and focused campaign on the left to indoctrinate all of our kids and to to push the most ugly forms of critical race theory into every classroom in America and to to have, you know, this new order of racial equity. And I think that is that is similarly hysterical. And there are genuinely bad ideas out there, and there are genuinely bad actors like people like Ibram Kennedy who are pushing really ugly ideas. But I think we're going to have a hard time actually confronting those ideas if we can't be honest about one, the degree to which this is actually a concern. And two, the degree to which like, and this is very really good news, guy. I want to be sure that I get this right. Most Americans, Hate race essentialism on the left and the right, most Americans believe in the kind of fundamental ideas that we've borrowed from or that we inherited from dr. Martin Luther King, the notion that people ought to be judged by the content of their character and that race isn 't the most important thing about who we are, and I think that 's really important to keep in mind no, and that I think that 's is-
2: true camille I, I think that 's true, and I think that 's a cause for hope, and that 's why when you see in polls when some of the Race fixation talking points polled, it just gets, you know, they get blown out of the water. People yeah. can't stand them. However, I want to get your reaction to a few things, including a new Gallup poll that just came out last week. Relations mm-hmm. between black and white Americans are now at least perceived to be at a multi decade low. And right. the question that they asked is what would you say? about relations between white and black people. Are they very good, somewhat good, somewhat bad, or very bad? And for many years, so 2000 Mm -hmm. to 2013 or so, it was roughly 70% good, 30% bad. Consistent.
4: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And
2: then... 2013 until now, there's been a lot of turbulence, and in 2021, it is now flipped. 57% of Americans say that black-white relations are at least somewhat or very bad. Only 42% say good, and I, I can't help but wonder, are the people who are very deliberate in their goal of dividing us, are they succeeding? Or is this an example of Americans being blind for many years, and now all of a sudden they're awake or woke and they're seeing things how they really are. I, I don't want to believe that that's fundamentally true, even if it's it's good that people are maybe becoming more self-aware in certain ways and empathetic. That's fine. But to me, it's very disturbing in 2021 to see by a 15-point margin, people saying white-black relations are bad. and And there are people who have worked tirelessly, in my view to achieve this tragic number.
4: Yeah, yeah. I'd say that it's definitely not the case that Americans are waking up to the truth that, and and by truth, I'm using air quotes here, like, they're not waking up to some ridiculous notion that America has become this much worse place or is a much worse place with respect to race than than we ever thought. I mean, if you actually look at the data for things like, say, police-involved shootings, for example— like, the number of police-involved shootings of any American has been falling precipitously for decades now. And that is true for whites and for blacks. The, when we talk about criminal justice reform, the number of blacks relative to whites that are incarcerated for everything from, like, violent crime to, to drugs, like those numbers are, the disparities there have been shrinking for decades now. Um, things have been improving. Black, and black yet the Americans perceptions, have seen improvements as well. The yeah.
2: perceptions have gone the other direction.
4: Right, the perceptions have gone in the other directions, and I think that has a lot to do with. And I suspect what the poll, what people who are responding to this poll are responding to, are narratives that we're seeing in the in the elite media, broadly speaking, um, that we're he- narratives that we're hearing pushed in many instances by progressive policymakers um, and by activists around these issues who are reframing reframing traditional debates um, and giving them to us in this sort of starkest starkest, sharpest, most kind of dire, depressing forms imaginable. And in many cases, I think dishonestly and disingenuously so, they're decoupling, you know, uh, an existing disparity that we might observe today from the actual historical reality that I described a moment ago. And they're also painting with a really broad brush, like the experience of every white person in America, insisting that if you're white, you're privileged in this country, when we know that isn't true and i think the important things that we can do right now are speak to the concerns that we all have for people who have disadvantages in this country i am as concerned about kids in appalachia in public schools that don't work for them who aren't getting educated who are barely reading at the right grade level as i am for baltimore kids who face precisely the same circumstances and the only differences between those kids um is something that's rather uh, superficial, right? It's the way that they look. But beyond that they need the same things. And I think Americans would be far better served by not focusing on, you know, the race of the people who find themselves in disadvantaged circumstances or even the percentages of sort of black old versus white people that find themselves in a position of disadvantage but the fact that there are lots of americans who are struggling oh i agree but there's i totally
2: agree with that camille it's just there's a whole cottage industry basically uh devoted to making sure that it does boil down to race and telling people from a very early age that it is about their skin color uh, which is Mm -hmm. really quite backwards last thing i want to get your reaction to we don't have a lot of time left aoc Congresswoman from new york city was on cnn talking about critical Mm -hmm. race theory in these debates, and she said, among other things, quote, why don't Republicans want their kids to know the tradition of anti-racism in the United States? Why don't Republicans want us to learn how not to be racist? That's how she's framing this. What's your response to that?
4: I, I think my response is that there are actually a lot of Americans who imagine that that is how Republicans feel rightly or wrongly, and I know that it's wrong. I don't know any conservatives who don't want to talk about slavery in schools. In fact, in my experience, when conservatives think about the history of America and the fact that slavery existed here, what they are proud of is the fact that America is a country that fought a civil war and brought that horrible institution to an end. What they're proud of is the accomplishments of the civil rights movement, civil rights movement. They want to talk about those things. But I think the challenge for conservatives is to commit themselves, not to trying to ban an amorphous concept like critical race theory so that it doesn't find its way into schools or to ban the 1619 project. Those things are part of our culture. They exist. Um, if we're going to try and you know fix these kind of disputes over curriculum that are happening all over the country the way to do that is by proposing better curriculum you combat bad ideas by talking about them and addressing them you can't abolish them out of existence you can't keep it out of the classroom absolutely classrooms are not places for indoctrination but classrooms are for students at the appropriate ages and the appropriate time. Well, I think that's a key point. point. I think appropriate age issues.
2: and ha- having an academic debate among college students is different than telling second graders that they're all about Absolutely. their race. And- exactly. So yeah. this is a conversation, Camille, that we're going to have to continue because it's important. You're very thoughtful on this stuff. We appreciate what you're doing out there. It's Camille Foster, co-host of the popular Fifth Column Podcast. He's a partner at Freethink. Camille, appreciate Let's do it again.
1: Absolutely, Guy. Take it easy, buddy.
2: I'm Guy Benson. It's Labor Day, and this is the best of the Guy Benson Show.
1: Guy Benson will be right back.
2: It's Labor Day in the USA, and you're listening to the best of The Guy Benson Show. As we continue on The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, interesting data from several polling sources, including Gallup, about friendship in the United States. With people self-reporting now across the country, significantly lower levels of friendship, fewer close friends, contracting social circles. And some of that might just be because of COVID, right, where people have limited options and limited opportunities to actually see and maintain friendships. That's a reality. I find this interesting. More than three decades ago, this is from Gallup, 75% of Americans said they had a best friend. That number in this year's poll was just 59%, so just over half of Americans saying, yes, I have a best friend. I wonder what explains that. Then there's this from Yahoo News. Politics may be a key reason friendships are declining. Of those surveyed, 20% of Democrats and 10% of Republicans said they ended a friendship over a political disagreement. Of those who said they ended a friendship over politics, almost a quarter said former President Donald Trump was the reason. And we have discussed this on the show. We did a whole call topic on it. It's a thing. And the data here, this is from the Survey Center on American Life, shows that Republicans actually have more friends across the political divide than Democrats. More than half of Republicans say they have at least a close Democratic friend. Among Democrats, that number is less than one-third. So there's a commentary perhaps to be made there on open-mindedness and tolerance. And then you get the flip side of it of people saying, well, I don't want to be friends with the intolerant, even if they're the intolerant one. And round and round it goes. Here's just a public service announcement. It's wonderful to have friends who disagree on issues. And we should not discriminate based on politics. What a sad way to live one's life. I'm Guy Benson, it's Labor Day, and this is the best of The Guy Benson Show.
1: From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
2: A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Labor Day. It's the best of the Guy Benson Show. Visit us online at GuyBensonShow.com. When Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned unexpectedly... We immediately spoke with our friend Janice Dean. She's been a tireless fighter on this issue, and we got her instant reaction minutes after the resignation announcement. Here's Janice. Fox News Alert.
4: Wasting energy on distractions is the last thing that state government should be doing. And I cannot be the cause of that. New York tough means New York loving. And I love New York. And I love you. And everything I have ever done has been motivated by that love. And I would never want to be unhelpful in any way. And I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing.
2: Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, is out. Shocking many, including me, he announced earlier today that he will be resigning his office effective two weeks from today. He has been scandal-plagued. He has been an absolutely shameless liar. The walls closed in slowly and then rapidly, and he was left with nowhere to turn. This is an act of civic hygiene, his removal from office, but he does not deserve any credit for it because he only did this because he was out of options. He was cajoling begging and bullying until the very end and then he looked around and realized the only way out is under the exit door and that's why he made this call today and i cannot think of anyone that i would rather talk to about this as the news breaks in real time than our first guests on the program today our friend our colleague Fox News meteorologist, best-selling author, and on this front, I would dare say a hero. Janice Dean joins us by phone. Janice, what an absolute pleasure to speak to you today.
0: Well, I felt it was important to talk to you because you were one of the ones who stood by me from the very beginning, Guy. Guy. You know, when everybody else was hailing this guy as the pandemic politician and perhaps a president one day, at one point he was going to be Biden's AG. And you had me on your program, you know, week after week uh, with every development that happened, wanting to know what was going on with the nursing homes and where we were at in terms of the investigations. And so I thank you. And for me, it's a pleasure to be on with someone who supported me from the very beginning.
2: Well, that means a lot, Janice. And we can get back to your role in this in just a second. I do want to ask you, truthfully, honestly, did you ever deep down believe this day would come?
0: I will tell you, we had a memorial for my husband's parents yesterday after a year and a half.
2: That was yesterday. Oh, my word.
0: It was. And we were talking about it, my husband and I, who doesn't, you know, listen, he doesn't love that I have been on, you know, every Fox News channel, uh, (laughs) every show and every radio program. um, Because, you know, he's worried about me. He's worried about my health. He's, you know, worried about repercussions, that kind of thing. But he said to me wouldn't it be something if the governor resigned on the day that we had the memorial, which was yesterday? And then I texted him today after I heard the news and he said, it's better that it was today because yesterday was about Mickey and D. And today, you know, today's the day that it's about the governor of New York leaving the stage.
2: Janice, I was on Fox News Channel earlier on America Reports reacting to the breaking news. And they played a soundbite of the resignation statement from Governor Cuomo. And they asked me, John Roberts asked me for my reaction. And the words that came out of my mouth instantly were, shameless liar. He is still shamelessly lying as he exits stage left. He's pretending that he didn't really do what these women have accused him of doing, that it was really just a misunderstanding about a hug. That is very obviously not the case if you read this AG report. He is still continuing this victory lap on COVID, this insane fraud that he's perpetrated that has enriched him with $5 million from a book deal, an Emmy Award, all this stuff on the nursing home's Scandal And the cover-up and the manipulation of data and the withholding of information, the undercounting of deaths overall and in nursing homes, I mean, that piece of it that is so personal to you, and in my view, that's so much more significant, not to downplay the sexual misconduct side of it, what I'm encouraged to hear, at least so far, Janice, is that a lot of the people, yourself included, but also lawmakers and others, they're saying just because he's stepping down, which I never thought he would do unless he was out of options, which is clearly clearly the case here, that's not the end of this for him or the other people who are complicit in the nursing home scandal. That investigation will move forward. That accountability project is absolutely not completed with a mere resignation, but my goodness, that resignation is still huge, and it has to feel, on some level, deeply gratifying, no?
0: Yes, because he's out of power now. And, you know, even when he was into so much turmoil with all the scandals and he was hanging on and he wasn't going to go anywhere, he still had power. But now he will be powerless. And I think, you know, it's easier for these investigations to move forward because they don't have the stumbling block. You know, today when he was saying, oh, it's about New York, I care about New York. He's never cared about New Yorkers. I mean, listen, I've been covering this governor for a year and a half now. The only guy he cares about is himself. So, I mean, listen, I. Do you think anybody believed that? I suppose there's still, you know, those those Cuomo supporters out there that will support him regardless. Um, but, you know, Very today is now. a good day. Today is a good day. I'm not going to lie. Today, the Angels were on our side, Guy. I really, truly believe that.
2: Janice, I remember having you on this show back in January, and you were on the brink of tears because you were responding to a really nasty comment from one of Cuomo's enforcers, one of his spokespeople, talking about you. Quote, she's not a credible source on anything except maybe the weather. Well, how the forecast has changed by (laughs) August. Am I wrong?
0: My long-range forecast is pretty darn good. It's hard (laughs) to do that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when, when he said that, I knew it was part of their routine. You know, they like to demean, they like to, you know, enforce their power. This has always been about his abuse of power, whether it's the nursing homes, whether it's sexual harassment, whether it's using state resources to get his friends and family COVID tests when nursing homes couldn't get any, whether it was him celebrating his $5.1 million book and saying he was, you know, the anointed one, the leader of New York and perhaps the U.S. one day, you know, it's my gosh, I, I'm, I'm grateful that he was so arrogant, because if it wasn't for his arrogance, I wouldn't have spoken out. It was literally the Q-tip moment on CNN with his brother, Chris. And I was just so furious. The grief turned to anger. And I went on Tucker Carlson the next night in May of 2020. And here we are today. And can I tell you this? You know what? This time last year, guy, they refused to hear my testimony in Albany about the nursing homes. They rescinded my invitation because they were uncomfortable with my appearance. That was a year ago today.
4: Wow.
2: And your loved ones who were lost to COVID in New York nursing homes were finally memorialized in a formal ceremony yesterday and governor cuomo announcing his resignation today there is some poetic justice there i'll point out and there'll be time for this you know the national democrats ronan farrow who's a buddy of mine he has a piece out today about another abuse of power from andrew cuomo back in 2014 that the obama team is saying oh we were we were horrified by what he did didn't stop them from making him a keynote speaker or a major speaker at the 2016 DNC, the 2020 DNC in prime time after the nursing home scandal had broken. The Biden people were heavily involved in promulgating the lie of Andrew Cuomo, and only when Biden and National Democrats felt like their backs were up against the wall, and they had no choice anymore. They decided at last that he was expendable and, in fact, worse, a liability. So out came the knives. And I guess at some point Cuomo looked around and realized uh, they were gone, right? The friends were all gone. No one had his back anymore, and he was going to do it either somewhat on his own terms or face the indignity of being forcibly removed from office. And so he ta- he took sort of the, the slightly easier way out. Janice, if you'll just indulge me for a second. When this news broke earlier, I went on Twitter. I immediately thought of you, immediately. And I tweeted this, at Janice Dean appreciation thread, go. And it now has thousands of likes, yeah. retweets, and replies. I want to read a few of them to you. Our colleague, Molly Hemingway, thank you, Janice Dean, for all your work on behalf of New Yorkers in long-term care facilities. This should have happened a long time ago, but better late than ever. Your work is an inspiration. Our colleague, Kat Timph, tweeted about your friendship and the way that you helped her. Quote, this past winter, Janice was having a horrific week, but still took the time to send me chocolate-covered strawberries because she wanted to cheer up my horrific week. It's just response after response, dozens, hundreds now of replies, Janice. I hope that when you have a quiet moment later, you have an opportunity to scroll through and just recognize what you did really mattered and made a difference, and a lot of people recognized it and care. And I'm just trying to not get too emotional, but what a day. What a richly deserved day for you.
0: You're a good friend guy and thank you for your support. And I don't really know what to say. You know, gosh, I I don't know what to say but I, I hope it made a difference and I'll continue to fight. You know, it's not over yet. He's not gone yet. And I want to make sure that these investigations continue. So I don't want to celebrate just yet, but when we can, Can you and I open a bottle of champagne or whatever that wonderful drink it is that you. you Oh, the long (laughs) drink?
2: (laughs) Sure. That sounds like a plan. That sounds like a plan. (laughs) And, Janice, uh, you did make a difference. One voice can make a difference. You took a risk, you showed courage. You used a platform available to you. I'm very proud of the whole team at Fox here giving you that platform and lending you these opportunities over and over again to keep the feet to the fire. And they sneered at you. They mocked you. They attacked you. They impugned you. You never stopped. You never gave up. As you say, this isn't over, but it's a milestone. And I'm not sure it would have ever happened without your efforts so on that front alone congratulations and well done and i can't wait to see you in person and give you a hug
0: me too i love you buddy god bless you thank you so much for everything
2: janice dean on the guy benson show we'll be right back it's labor day in the usa and you're listening to the best of the guy benson show
1: you're listening to a new generation of talk generation of talk guy benson
2: Happy Labor Day. Hope you're having a good long weekend. You're listening to the best of The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Here on The Guy Benson Show, a few more notes on the Cuomo stuff as he has announced his resignation, effective in two weeks. I did not see that coming. Although I did in my previous conversation with Janice Dean, last time she was on the show, I said if he starts to get the sense that the legislature is really moving seriously, for real, towards impeachment... He might start to bargain. He might, just, he might start to say, well, how about this? You call off the dogs on impeachment. I won't run for re-election. And the New York Post reported yesterday that's exactly what he did behind the scenes. When he realized his goose was cooked, he went to leaders and started to talk about and float the idea of just not seeking a fourth term. But by that point, the gears were in motion. They said, no, he was rebuffed. And he had no other option. Hence the resignation today. And I'm not going to let the media forget the way that they hailed him, the way that they celebrated him as some COVID hero. Ignoring in many cases for far too long the abject failure in nursing homes, the huge deadly mistake that he made, and then worse, far worse, the cover-up, the lies, the manipulating of data, counting deaths differently to cover up the mistake, that's the biggest part of this scandal. And a lot of people were very invested in the narrative of Cuomo as the anti-Trump, the foil, the hero, the model, including Joe Biden. After it became public that Team Cuomo had manipulated the data, they still showcased him in primetime at their convention. Biden called him a model for the country. They want you to forget all of that and say, oh, well, look, he did this stuff to these women and we all have principles and now he's gone. No, they propped him up and fed into his self-serving myth for as long as they possibly could. In most cases. So they don't get to sort of elide some of these unpleasant details and pretend like, oh, look, look at what we've done together. Meanwhile, the Washington Post reporting that CNN's Chris Cuomo, brother of Andrew Cuomo, was continuing to advise his brother amid these scandals and this crisis. Two months ago on the air, he acknowledged that doing so, advising his brother, was, quote, inappropriate. He said it will not happen again. But Washington Post reporting that it continued to happen and their media columnist at WAPO now calling for an investigation internally at CNN into Chris Cuomo for the ethics involved there. Chris Cuomo's on vacation right now. Could his job end up being in jeopardy just like his brother? We'll see. I'm Guy Benson. It's Labor Day, and this is the best of The Guy Benson Show. Visit us online at GuyBensonShow.com. You're listening to the best of The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. On a recent program, we had Jesse Waters, our Fox News colleague, join us. Always a fun conversation with Jesse Waters, including this discussion that we had. We are joined now by Jesse Waters, co-host of The Five, host of Waters World, airing Saturday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox News, and also author. You may not have heard about this, though. He's been very quiet about this, very reserved I'm glad he's finally promoting this book. He has a new book out, How I Saved the World, out now. It's been out for almost a week. Jesse, great to have you back.
5: Thank you, Guy. And for the people who say I've been promoting the book too much, I don't think I've promoted it enough. I, I agree. I am here to talk about my book. And I'm only doing it because I know the book will make people happy, and it's my job to make people happy. Mm, So just give in to it and, like, let's go. Yeah. I mean, you're you're really doing this
2: as a very high-minded thing and a very selfless (laughs) thing, if you really think about it. You are doing this as a favor to the world, which you have apparently saved based on the title of the book, How I Saved the World. And, Jesse, there might be an ulterior motive also in all of the book promotion because if the book does well – then you might finally make a name for yourself and get invited to do something like throw out a first pitch at a Major League Baseball game. And so I'm rooting for you, and I hope that you finally come out of your shell. You call that a pitch, Guy? Uh, I certainly do. It's a pretty good one.
5: Pretty strong. Is your arm still sore?
2: Oh, no. I mean, I've I've been practicing ever since, just in case the Yankees or someone else call. In fact, I don't know if I could be any worse than the Yankees' bullpen right now, so maybe they should give me a shot. Jesse, let's so, talk about the book. You
5: know, I, have, I don't have a lot of memory space in my brain. It's taking up a lot of space, just promoting. So I don't actually remember in specific detail how good or bad of the pitch it was. The only thing I remember, two things. One, he didn't throw from the rubber. And two, it was a little bit outside, but I couldn't get a good angle. Did you not have them shoot it at a proper angle to give yourself an out if you did hop it?
2: No, so it was, this was just a fan in the crowd who filmed it. That was the video that I was able to get of it, and it was not Guy in Benson, fact.
5: Of the Guy Benson show couldn't get better footage? I find that very hard to believe. Well, I wasn't also clamoring for
2: it. It It's like someone just said to me, I'm like, oh, that's cool. You put it on the five, which I thought was pretty cool. I did not throw from the rubber because they were telling me all these things that I could not do to the rubber, or else I would royally piss off the grounds crew guy. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to go on the rubber. I'm going to go on the mound, but I'm not going to go on the rubber, so just relax. And then, you know, to the naked eye, the pitch may have looked slightly high and outside. However... (laughs) <laughs> the umpire, the umpire there was blooper, their mascot, who looks kind of like a knockoff Philly fanatic, I have to say, but he okay. was the umpire and he has the you know the binding authority here, and he called it a strike. So that's all he I called can it say. A strike. He did right, so. It's so to... I threw a strike. It right. is what it is.
5: Uh, now, well, Jesse, I, I... You no, know, I put it on the five. I did put it on the five, <laughs> uh, and and I wasn't prompted by you. I saw it on the internet. I put it on the five. Because it is a big deal to throw out the first pitch. And if they didn't, if they said, Jesse, don't throw it from the rubber, I'm not throwing it from the rubber. I do what I'm told, guy. And <laughs> I'm not oh, make, now, I'm they not didn't, make it they any didn't more forbid me. To
2: just to be clear, they didn't forbid me. They just said, if you're going to go to the rubber, don't do this, don't do that. They had like this list of things. I said, I'm not going to bother with any of it. I'm going to leave the rubber pristine, and I'll throw it from like, you know, a step or two in front, but still on the mount. Anyway, we can move on, because there's a book to promote here, Jesse. It's extremely <laughs> yeah. important. How I Saved the World. And we've sort of teased this book for months leading up to the publication. We've chatted about the book a bit here on the air. I'm intrigued, because each chapter features something that you have saved. And Correct. the reviews are rolling, in. the reviews are just amazing. And you've got the blurbs, the testimonials on the back of the book. For example, quote... Does Waters have the most punchable face in America? The answer is obviously yes, raves the Daily Beast. (laughs) Keep this guy off TV, glows Mayor Bill de Blasio. I mean, the list goes on. (laughs) Blissfully ignorant, says Salon. Uh, That must have been fun rounding up some of that type of
5: praise. It was fun, but it was easy, because you Google yourself, and it's literally the first page of Google, guy. I didn't have to look very long and hard for these bad reviews, and I also didn't want to like call Hannity and be like, hey, Sean, can you write a fake blurb about my book, even though you've never read a thing I've written? I didn't want to have to owe anybody anything, so we just slapped on a bunch of hate onto the back, and I think that was right on my brand.
2: It was extremely on brand. I don't want to give too many spoilers, right, because Jesse Waters, according to himself, has saved the world. And you might be wondering how he did that. right? It seems like a pretty significant accomplishment. And I don't – people have to buy the book to truly understand how deeply uh, you have affected, really, world history, <laughs> if you think about it. But one example that you give, there's a chapter about how you have saved Christmas – And I know we're a ways off from Christmas, but I thought that might be an interesting example just to explore just a little bit. How did you save Christmas? Because I thought that was President Trump who saved Christmas, but please.
5: Well, he's taking credit for the victory, um, kind of like, you know, some Democrats did with Iraq. And what we did, I think it was like 2005 to 2009, there was an actual war on Christmas in this country. There were schools that were banning candy canes. There were schools that were banning Christmas trees. They were calling them holiday trees. I went up to Great Barrington, Massachusetts, very liberal town. They had removed all of the Christmas lights there because they had been contributing to global warming guy. So O'Reilly dispatched me to all of these places that were, you know, engaging in this war on Christmas. And I saved it. I had to stick mics in people's faces in Boca Raton. I think they took away this little baby Jesus from the manger and put up a satanic pendant (laughs) in the middle of the town square. So a lot of these are funny stories about how I'd go out and basically confront Scrooges. And now, like Donald Trump says, we say Merry Christmas again in this country. So Mm. to you and to everybody, I say you're welcome.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the stuff of heroism. Uh, It's the Lord's work, literally, as you see at Christmas, single-handedly, as Jesse Waters in Waters' world. You also have a chapter later in the book. How I Saved My Mom's Texts, and this is a running thing with you. Your mom will text you frequently with her thoughts. I know the feeling from both of my parents, although not quite as colorful, I would say, uh, as your mother. So maybe just uh, for people who don't know, fill us in on this dynamic. And then my question was, since it sounds like this has been a running thing for a very long time, how do you curate the best jesse 's mom text to actually make the cut into such an important book. I mean this is not just some fleeting Chiron on the five this is this is. You know, you're now a man of words, right? This is a book, this is a tome oh, yeah. that will last forever and stand the test of time. How did you pick these these text extinctions? Well, it's a
5: timeless book. Yes, you are you are a very accurate guy. So, for those of you <laughs> who don't know, um, and I'm ashamed that you don't know the mom Tech story because that means you haven't been watching the five. When I joined the five, well, in the beginning I'm, on, of the I'm on the era. air.
2: I'm on the uh, I'm on the air at five <laughs> o'clock. But but go on.
5: So. We were on a nine originally when I came on the show. And oh, right. my mom had a martini. Yeah, she had had a martini, at least one martini, perhaps three. And she hated Trump. She still hates Trump. And so she would just send me the most hostile text messages throughout the hour. And they were so hostile, I would kind of elbow Perino and Gutfeld and say, guys, can you believe what my mom just texted me? So Gutfeld said, read it on the air so i read one on the air and then it became a segment and throughout the trump presidency my mom had been radicalized she'd been she joined the resistance dragged my dad to the women's march and and just hated everything he did so uh, we put these together it was actually longer than 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 what you see in the book we had to edit these down these are the best <laughs> of the best but what's different about these guys is that i actually respond to each text before I didn't have time because I was on the air now I respond to each of my mom's nasty texts, and I get the last word and that's how I like it
2: right because you can really put a lot of thought into this and there's no rebuttal right this is permanently on the record in a book so it's like you get Again, an I insult have argument right you 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 wait you sit on the insult you're like George Costanza coming back (laughs) saying that you know his jerk store joke, except your mom doesn't have the opportunity to come back. It's just it's there and you've won it. And I find it interesting that your mom has been radicalized and she's out on the left. Your longtime co host at the five, Juan Williams, his family is all pretty conservative. You know, his sons, his wife, so it's it's gotta be an interesting dynamic at you know, the table at Christmas, for example, which only happens, there's only Christmas dinners anymore because of you, right? But it's still uh, an interesting dynamic there for the family. Are you guys able in real life to set that aside, or do you guys sort of sit at your own round table and yell at each other?
5: We've all gotten better. I've matured. My mother has, I would say, maybe gotten better. But it's not just my mother. It's my dad, and it's also my liberal sister, and her oh, you're really works for, outnumbered. Oh, oh, literally, I'm like the Juan Williams at my table. If that was the five, um, one unlucky guy, and, <laughs> and and my and my brother-in-law on my on my sister's side, he works for Joe Biden. He worked for Obama, then took four years off, then now works for Biden. So, I I find it smarter just to kind of not bring it up. And if they want to bring it up, that's fine. I try not to get emotional. But you know, guy, after a long drink, you can get a little (laughs) emotional when we talk politics.
2: I think that's fine, and it's fair. And what I'll also do sometimes, and this is also true, is whether it's friends or family or whatever, if things start to get a little heated, especially after a drink or two, I'll just say, look, I do this every single day for a job. Right, I'm on the air three hours a day. You are welcome to tune in and listen. You can get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. My views are out there. I'm happy to defend them, but sometimes when I'm just hanging out and trying to decompress with people that I love, maybe it's just not the best thing for me to rehash work. And I think a lot of people can at least appreciate not wanting to have like stressful work-related stuff at home you know, in, in friendship environments or family environments at the holidays or whatever. And people tend to respond to that. And it's not like a cheap, easy out, but sometimes you need something to diffuse a situation.
5: So, but most other people don't have the outlet we have. So they've been waiting all week, maybe all month to talk politics. And so when they see me, they just want to have at it and they want to hear me and they want to chit chat. So it's, it's, I'm fine. It's no, and I love easy. that.
2: And I love chit chat and I am happy to do it. It's just if things start to take a turn, is all I'm saying. Because it can be pleasant, it can like even have a little bit of an edge, but be respectful. When it goes beyond that is when I start to get, you know, uncomfortable and looking for like it
5: pull the ripcord. Well, if it gets uncomfortable, it's everybody's fault but mine. Right? That's true. I'm and I mean it's also puts it over the edge. It's no, everybody it's... else's
6: fault.
2: That's always it's never your fault. We know this, Jesse. And (laughs) frankly, think about the amount, the the prodigious amount of arrogance and selfishness it takes to really, uh, you know, become hostile and antagonize someone who has saved the world. I mean, you'd think they'd be more grateful.
5: Well, you'd think after I became a published author and was number one on Amazon this weekend and is gonna make a big splash in the New York Times list, you'd think for a family like mine with this liberal and academic pedigree, they would bow down every time I walked into the living room. And and that's what I expect. I I like to be referred to as best selling author, Jesse Waters. Uh, oh, no, no, it has to be no, no. For now. them,
2: it has to be failing New York Times best-selling author.
5: <laughs> yes, failing New York Times. You know, it's so funny how much I hate the Times, how much I wish I was on the list. <laughs> it's funny how that
2: works, right? right? It tends to it tends to go that way. Uh, Jesse, I do want to ask you on a personal note. I saw you guys just celebrated ten years on the air at the Five. You've been there for yeah. a good chunk of that time. I think that was last week. You also brought the new addition to your family onto the set. I think I saw. Either a clip of that or a photo of that. That must have been pretty exciting.
5: Yeah, he didn't poop. He didn't drool. Very proud of him. And he was a What are you talking player. about?
2: Are you talking about Gutfeld here or your child?
5: He performed better than Gutfeld, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and, and Gutfeld was alarmed because all the attention was not on him for once. And, um, and that was okay. So he made his big debut. And Jesse Jr. is now a little over three months. And he's thriving. And uh, and his first words were, build the wall. And a little early to speak, but we expected that uh, because his parents are highly intelligent. So uh, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. we're very, very precocious. Proud. He's a very precocious child. Last question. <laughs> As you read to him at night, I'm sure you're a wonderful father and, you know, you, you rock him to sleep and do a little bedtime reading beforehand. Do you read... How I Saved the World to your son, or you just put on the audio book and let that do the work.
5: I have read some excerpts to him as a joke, not seriously. But I stick to Good Night Moon and and those classics. I don't know if he's. I don't know if I want to inundate him with partisan politics and 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 tales of me harassing people. Oh, on just, beaches and the some of the meanness. Of San Francisco. The meanness of his (laughs) own
2: grandmother. I mean, that could be very disturbing for a young child to read some of those texts. So, yes, Goodnight Moon probably makes the most sense. I fully endorse that. The book is How I Saved the World with Jesse Waters, who is magically doing this show and co-hosting The Five right now. Jesse, congratulations on the book. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Guy. Happy Labor Day. Hope you're having a good long weekend. You're listening to the best of The Guy Benson Show.
1: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
2: I'm Guy Benson. It's Labor Day, and this is the best of The Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, classic song, Beer for My Horses, And the meaning behind that will become very clear in just a moment. I saw this story over the weekend, and I'll just preface it by saying I'm glad everyone is okay. But a Wyoming rancher named Frank Reynolds, I think, belongs in this particular catalog.
1: Bud Light presents Real American Heroes.
5: Real American Heroes.
2: I
1: loved this ad
2: campaign. From Bud Light, and they've changed it to Real Men of Genius. And then I think we talked about it. They did one related to the pandemic. Anyway, Frank Reynolds, 53 years old, was rounding up livestock in Wyoming on a neighbor's pasture when his ATV flipped over and pinned him down, dislocating his shoulder, breaking ribs, and he was stuck. No one was in earshot. He was in a remote area. He honked the horn until the battery died, but no one was around. Eventually, there was a search party organized, and they found him two days later. But he had survived. He wasn't dead. How did he survive? By drinking bottled water from his cooler and also beer. The man survived on beer. It was Keystone Light, apparently, so not quite in alignment with the Bud Light Real American heroes, but I think this counts. I saw people online quipping, I used Keystone Light to survive college. (laughs) Fact check true? I'm glad he's okay. Very American story. He survived and now he can kick back and maybe have a slightly more comfortable cold one. Cheers to you, sir. Back after this. Happy hour here on Labor Day. It's the Guy Benson Show. The best of the Guy Benson Show, in fact. And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink at thelongdrink.com. Hope you're enjoying your long week and maybe crack open a long drink. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. And our website here at the show, guybensonshow.com, where the podcast is always free, even on holidays like this one. It was really cool for me personally as a huge college football fan to have the opportunity to interview Kirk Herbstreit, analyst at ESPN. He's a fixture on game day. He has a new book out. We talked about all of the above during a recent happy hour. If you missed it, here it is. Kirk, thanks so much for doing this.
6: Thanks very much. I appreciate it.
2: So you have done so many of these these shows over the years. Do they sort of all bleed together? Or can you remember, for example, the only time I attended college game day was when you guys came to Evanston 2013 I believe it was for your Buckeyes a night game prime time and it was out on the lake it was a magical day for me despite the ultimate outcome of the game in the fourth quarter but I remember it vividly do you remember it or is it hard to sort of pick certain episodes out of the drawer because you've done so many
6: no I can recall you know I, I I remember uh, that show, I remember the, the beauty, you know, of, you know, they were, they were just in the process of talking about the facility that they now enjoy. And um, the fact that I'm a huge Pat Fitzgerald fan, the head coach at Northwestern, as you know. And, you know, the fact that Ohio State was playing them and it's a Big Ten game at night, which you don't always get a lot of Big Ten games at night, especially in Evanston and, and uh, the, the national stage. Being on that program, and then I was lucky enough not just to do game day, but to call the game. Right. uh, That night on ABC, and it ended up being a a very competitive game. So, no, I I remember, I don't remember, like, maybe detail to detail, but I definitely remember the trip.
2: Well, what I remember most about that show was you are scrupulous. Whenever you're calling a game that night, you don't pick the game in the pick'em at the end of game day because you want to be fair and you want to be balanced and you don't want to, you know, give any impression that you're rooting for anyone Brent Musburger, who's a Northwestern guy, he was the guest picker, I believe. And they brought him out and he did not even attempt to try to be impartial. He was in a Northwestern jersey. He picked the Cats. Yeah. I'm like, that's a very different approach than Herb Street.
6: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, he's in a very different stage in his career too uh, at True. that point. But um yeah, and also how often does he get a chance for college game day to be at his alma mater, and he's on as a celebrity picker, so he had no issue at all <laughs> you know, in fact, he just ha- he rolled with it and just kind of had some fun with it but uh end up remind me this will see if you have a great memory, you guys had a running back that year number five who's a really good player um who I can't remember he looked like Reggie Bush kind of. Oh in boy! His uniform. I but, wonder uh, if it
2: was Venrick Mark. He wore number five for yes, a while. Yeah, I think
6: it was. Yes, it was. Um, but they had they had they were right in that game um, the entire game, and of course Northwestern last year played Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship, and you know had some players that have gone on to the NFL. Yep. Um, so that 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 program, I still think it's very underrated. You know, I think that if you on a national level, if you say Northwestern. I just don't think people realize the job that uh, that Pat has done there and how long uh, he's been a, a winner there.
2: Well, he took over the program. And we can move on from Northwestern here in a second. He took over <laughs> the program when I was an undergrad because Randy Walker passed away the summer before my senior year. and wow. And then Fitzgerald came in, had a rough first season, not surprisingly. And then, you know, the amount of success... And consistency that he's installed in Evanson has been pretty exciting. I have no idea what to expect this year. So many new pieces to put into the puzzle. uh, But I'll be watching Friday night ESPN, Cats hosting Michigan State. Now, let's talk about the book because I read it over the weekend. There are some stories and anecdotes in your book, Out of the Pocket, Kirk, that I thought were hilarious. One that I chuckled out loud reading was, first of all, I didn't realize as a, you know, scarlet and gray, bleeding Buckeye that you seriously considered going and playing at Michigan. I didn't know that till I read the book. And then you tell the story of your recruiting trip to Michigan, and they're playing Ohio State, and your inner Buckeye just couldn't be contained, <laughs> and you end up storming the field as a Michigan recruit after Ohio State wins the game. That is priceless.
6: Yeah. Yeah. I'm there as a Michigan recruit with my name tag on and, and in my own head, knowing that I'm a Buckeye and went there, sat up with the, all the rest of the uh, the players. You know, there were high school recruits and yet I'm watching this game and it was the game, the infamous game where Earl Bruce had already been fired and he wore a fedora and a full suit and the, the players that game wore headbands that said Earl on them and they were trying to go out, even though they had they didn't have a great year. They were trying to go out and basically win the game for him, so he could go out a winner. And you know that game's always emotional, and Ohio State ends up uh, winning that game late, and a lot of their fans started to pour out onto the field in Ann Arbor, in Michigan, and I'm caught up like the ten-year-old <laughs> Kirk is caught up in the whole thing, and i'm I'm seeing all those fans run down there, and I'm in the Michigan section, and I just take off and I start running down onto the field uh, to celebrate with the uh with the Ohio State fans and the Ohio State players with my Michigan name tag on jumping up and down on the on the players fired up that Ohio State had won the game.
2: You talk a lot about that rivalry in your book, and of course it's one of the greatest in college sports. You also talk about the tribalism. Of sports and sports fans and I can relate this a little bit to what we do here on politics it's gotten increasingly tribal and of course sports by definition is sort of tribal but you have the mainstream people who are you know voters for one party or another or you know rooting for one team or another then there's always a relatively small group of folks who will sometimes take it too far and you relay examples of, you know, Tennessee fans sort of abusing you guys on college game day because they felt like you guys had a bias against them and you've had stuff thrown at you, things said on the street. The saddest part, I remember when this happened, was when you felt like you had to move your family out of Ohio because there were people who questioned your loyalty, which is insane, uh, because you were just trying to do your job as an analyst. And I wonder sort of what you make of that and how you try to – maybe compartmentalize some people who take the game too seriously and go too far without losing your love of the game and the fan base and the state?
6: Well, I think first things first is there's an appreciation from me that there's a passion that's that strong for the sport. Like I I think – Part of the success that we've enjoyed on College Game Day and this would be my twenty sixth year on the show. Wow. And you know, we we, we uh, we'll have a, a you know, game day and we'll have I don't know, eight to ten thousand, fifteen thousand people around our set and the game's not till eight o'clock at night. And they just they love the show, they love the sport. So that passion uh, for the sport, I think, is the greatest in the United States. I don't think the NFL has that. I don't think uh, NBA. I don't think MLB. I don't think any other sport can do what we do as far as, you know, you go to these tailgates and you go around the energy of these college campuses. It's incredible. So I, I would say the majority of me appreciates and understands the passion that the fans have. Now, there's always going to be radicals. You know, there are radicals in every walk of life that kind of ruin it for the rest of us. And that's what you're referring to. Yep. You know, it's, it's like that vocal minority that, um, they. you know, I could say a sentence. I could say literally, hey, I hope everybody has a, a great uh, Monday afternoon. People would be like, I can't. You know, what do you have against Tuesday? You know, it, it, you know, you know what I mean? Like they just, no matter what you say, they're upset. And so once you do it, you know, I'm older now, I've experienced a lot. Once you realize these people hate themselves, they hate their lives. If they're not mad at me, they're mad at someone else. Like they just, they're vile. They're just constantly toxic. Everything around them is toxic. And then I think you start to realize, wow, there's a fraction of people that no matter what, they're just going to be upset. Yep. And you don't take it personally. And I think when I moved my family, I I was hurt because I'm a pleaser by nature. I was hurt that there was even a fraction of Ohio State fans that didn't understand, of course I love Ohio State, but I got a job to do, Mm -hmm. and I'm gonna be objective. And I think it was more of at that time, peace of mind. I had four young boys and my wife and I just thought it'd be better to maybe get off a little bit of the beaten path. If I went through that experience again in 2021, I probably wouldn't move my family. You know, there's not a playbook for living in the public eye. And once you experience a decade of of having kids and being around it, you kind of become callous somewhat. And so um, I mean, you have to I am you have to be. Yeah. To to have sanity over everything, (laughs) because I always come from a very. You know, I, if you listen to me, I'm not like a guy on TV or radio that throws things against the wall or tries to stir up trouble, you know, like just tries to be a guy that's like But you're not a hot you know, you're what, not a hot take dispenser, I'm Not a hot right? take guy. I'm not a let's watch, Let's see what, let's see how they react to this one. Watch this. Like I'm the opposite of that. You know, I try to be a voice of reason. I try to be a guy that's incredibly overprepared. You may disagree with what I'm saying, but I don't really say very many things that are going to make you like take it personally or get upset. And yet, you know, there I was with people that were, you know, getting getting personal. Like I and walked by the into way, the way, just, just just to jump in, smack them across the face, and, and just
2: to jump in. I think it can be very frustrating. And some of what you're saying is really resonating with me and the job that I do and some of the feedback I occasionally get. But I think what you do and why you've been successful is because. Many, many, many more of us appreciate that, right? And we vastly outnumber sort of the screamers. And as soon as you can make peace with that and recognize it and then move forward, which you have, uh, I think, you know, all the better for your career and everything else. Now, you invoked your wife there a moment ago. You tell a story in the book out of the pocket about (laughs) a great game day tradition on the show, Lee Corso at the end. God knows what he's going to do from week to week. Is he going to shoot a gun? Is he going to terrify you in some new way? He puts on the headgear. I don't think he's ever put on Willie the Wildcat yet, but maybe one day. How did that tradition start, and how did your wife play a role in it?
6: Yeah, my wife uh, cheered at Ohio State. And when uh, I started on the show in 1996, she was an alum, and we – traveled early that year maybe third or fourth week of the season we traveled to columbus and lee corso asked me "Do you mind asking allison if she'll ask the cheerleading coach if i can wear brutus for my pick i want to put the brutus headgear on so i asked allison she asked judy judy said came back and said no so i said hey coach sorry allison asked they said no so a couple of days went by. Now it's like Thursday. He called me again. He's like, please, one more. This is going to be great. Just go. Maybe ask the athletic director, Andy Geiger, whatever. We got to make this happen. So we kept talking to people. And finally, and they're very protective, of these headgears, by the way. I mean, oh, it's yeah. not like an easy, easy thing. They're very protective. And finally, Andy Geiger, who was the athletic director, he green-lighted it. And so we went on the set. And back then the show was only an hour. And at the end, he it was Ohio state, Penn state. And he said, you know what? I got nothing to say. And he just slammed on this head, this <laughs> Brutus uh, head and that here he is with his suit and tie. And he's doing like the, 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 queen. Yeah. And he's just got this little Brutus headgear on and people went crazy. And the next week, and from that point on, Pretty much everywhere we've been, with the exception of Michigan where they don't they don't have a mascot head or auburn doesn't doesn't let him put on their mascot head everywhere else we've been he's he's put on a mascot uh, mascot head on for about twenty five years now and it's become you know a part of the part of the uh the, the landscape of college football and, and it's... the last uh
2: Yeah. It's ridiculous, which is why it's so fun. It it looks so absurd, and yet you're so used to it now. It's like, oh, yeah, of course there's this uh, older gentleman uh, wearing this felt uh, animal head on top of his suit, right? Because it's it's what you do. It's what happens at the end of every episode of Game Day. And, Kirk, let's take a quick break. My guest is Kirk Herbstreit of ESPN, his new book out, Out of the Pocket. We're having him on as college football season begins. Very appropriate. We will continue our conversation on the other side of this break on The Guy Benson Show.
1: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
2: I'm Guy Benson, it's Labor Day, and this is the best of The Guy Benson Show. Kirk, reading the book, it really struck me how much affection and respect you have for the guys on this team. Uh, The, the game day team, Lee Corso, of course, the coach. For many years, Chris Fowler, who's now moved on to play-by-play, and you guys work together in that capacity. Just like a total... Pro, I've always looked up to him. Reese Davis, we have on this show from time to time. We we love Reese, and that's got to make it all the more of a joy for you to show up to work, not only to go out into these you know passionate crowds and talk about what you love, but actually working with guys that you genuinely love.
6: Well, I, I I've got a philosophy on on studio television. And really, really radio as well. And I think it has everything to do with when you work with people, because the camera's on you. When you work with people that, that you, as you say, genuinely love, uh, you enjoy the meetings, you know, the, on Friday. You enjoy going to dinners on Friday nights. You enjoy your time together. And I think when it's real, the camera really can pick that up. You know, they, you, they can pick up the smiles at each other, the, you know, the, the hand gestures, the pats on the back.
2: Right. It's you authentic.
6: Know, we, we, it's very real, and it's not pretend. And I, I think, you know, not only that, I think that the, the people in the truck, you know, they, they love college football. That's the one common bond we all have is our love for college football and how much we cherish it and how much we want to take care of it. And so – um you know, I, I think, you know, it's, it's it's cool that you can see that and feel that. And we've lost some great people and we've added some great people. But I think the the word family, sometimes it's overused. But if you ever get around game day and you get kind of behind the scenes, you would feel like it's, it's kind of one big family. The guys uh, that are camera guys on our desk, those guys feel just as much a part of our show as the guys that are on the air. so And all the guys in the truck, the same thing. So, yeah, we're we're, we're very lucky to to all work together and all enjoy one another's company. And
2: that really does come through on the air, you can tell. One more segment with Kirk Herbstreet, my guest, from ESPN. His new book is Out of the Pocket. We continue and finish our conversation straight ahead. I'm Guy Benson. It's Labor Day, and this is the best of The Guy Benson Show. Visit us online at GuyBensonShow.com. Benson. You're listening to the best of the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Our website is GuyBensonshow.com. It's the happy hour, and I am pleased to have Kirk Herbstreet here with us. You see him all the time on ESPN. And now you have the opportunity to read his new book, Out of the Pocket. I did so over the weekend. I really enjoyed it. And Kirk, I just want to point out that you did mention radio briefly in the last segment. You did get your on-air start in radio, which we love to see here on the radio program. I just want to throw that out there. Last question, Kirk. It's about college football, this game that you love, that you say that you want to protect. And you're such a great ambassador. I'm not blowing smoke. You're a great ambassador for the game. I'm a hardcore college football fan. I didn't grow up that way. I grew up in the New York area, didn't really have a team. I didn't understand people who were really into college sports. I thought that was strange. Other parts of the country did that. And then I went to Northwestern and got bitten by the bug. And it's, you know, never looked back since... I look at realignment. I look at what's happening with the SEC now adding these powerhouses from the Big 12 and now this whole sort of um, chain reaction of conversations around the country about more realignment. And now you're getting players who are going to be compensated for their likeness and their names. And again, I think that there's a fairness there, and I believe in free markets. But I also look at this and I say, gosh, could this game be changing irrevocably? And do I like that as a traditionalist? And I wonder how you puzzle through some of those things as someone who loves the game so much.
6: Well, I think anytime there's ch- change, let alone all the change at once, there's a knee-jerk reaction. It's just human nature to take a step back and say, whoa, wait a second. Like, this is one of the things I cherish what's happening. And I think that's, that's to be expected. As we lived about eight weeks now, name, image, and likeness, you know, I don't see these drastic changes. So far there have been about fifteen hundred transactions, the average about nine hundred and twenty three dollars, which is still real money and good money. And good for them. I I didn't come from money. That would have been great if I were in college. But it's not the way people are describing millions of dollars. Right. You know, it's it's just not that's just not true. Um and, and you're right, it is it is a different world in a free market and that that's that's we're just gonna kinda keep watching that. My biggest fear is You know This alliance now with the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC was a response to Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, bringing in Texas and Oklahoma. I think their feelings were hurt, and they kind of circled the wagons together and said, okay, the three of us can outvote the SEC in their one vote. No matter how big and strong they are, they only have one vote. So when we vote on issues, let's the three of us like to show the survivor. Mm -hmm. the three of us will will, vote them off the island yeah yeah well exactly we'll always win no matter what's going on expansion you know playoff expansion whatever it might be i think that's where we are my fear is they have to get in the same room together like at some point they got to put their feelings aside and for all of us as fans the players most importantly for us to be able to enjoy college football you can't be regionalized you know the sec can't go play on their own island You know, this new alliance can't go play on their own island. Like, everybody has to be together. And so the leaders of college football have got some big, big decisions to make, and they need to come together and not allow some things that have happened to kind of separate them and divide them. So I think we can overcome a lot of the other changes and be okay. And I I, I just worry about um, the leadership – and I worry about the perception of money, money, money. NFL, NFL, money, money. And like what we, you, and I, and all of us love about college football is the pad injury, yes, the tailgating, the marching band, yes. You know the sense of community. I don't want minor league. I don't want minor you know, league we football. We, we, that's not an option. We can't have that. That's not, not. It cannot happen. And that's where these decision makers have got to protect the game and not let that happen. <clears throat> Kirk
2: Herbstreet, his new book is Out of the Pocket. Football, fatherhood, we didn't get into that, and, and your dad's battle with Alzheimer's. That's something that my family has dealt with. I just really appreciated uh, what you had to say in the book. I will con- I will finish the subtitle. Football, fatherhood, and college game day Saturdays. And, Kirk, before I let you go, pick them. Friday night, under the lights, ESPN, Sparty, at Ryan Field. They come rolling in who you got.
6: I, I not just saying this because um, because you're an alum, but I think Northwestern at home, even though they got a new quarterback and coming off a big year, I think Michigan State's still rebuilding, and so they got a lot of transfers in. But I don't think it'll be enough. I think I think you'll be happy. I think you get your first win of the year. and Start one zero.
2: From your lips to God's ears. I hope that happens. I'll be watching Kirk Herb Street. Really appreciate you taking some time and talking about the book and talking about college football. It's a personal thrill to chat with you over the air and hopefully we'll catch up again someday.
6: Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.
2: You bet. Kirk Herbstreet, analyst at ESPN, especially on College Game Day. That's sort of the signature show. And his book is out of the pocket available now. And he picked the cats for Friday night. I'm happy about that. I really hope he's right. And of course, I'll be tuning in like a lunatic watching the entire game, living and dying. And then hopefully we'll get to see his analysis the next day on College Game Day, Saturday morning. When we come back, the home stretch here on The Guy Benson Show, my voice may sound just a tiny bit hoarse today. That's because I did a lot of cheering and singing last night at a music festival. I never go to music festivals. I'd never been to one before. But I got invited. I couldn't resist this opportunity. It was pretty awesome. That's why I'm here in New York doing the show today. We'll explain, and Curious Christine will make an appearance when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show.
1: Energetic, informed, fast-paced, Guy Benson Show.
2: Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. And if you're listening on the broadcast, you are hearing a song that was, for quite some time, our show open. It was the start of every show, and now it's just in our normal rotation of bumpers. And whenever I hear it, I get like an extra jolt of adrenaline. Because it just triggers something in my brain, like Pavlov's Dog, the show starting. Even though this is the last segment of the show, that's Born to be Yours by Kygo, who's this massive DJ with a huge following. And we actually play a lot of his stuff in our bumper music, because I think it's very catchy. And it's the perfect way to begin our segment here about the experience Adam and I had last night. So on Thursday, I believe it was, I got a text from my buddy Evan, who runs the long drink, our sponsor in the happy hour. Finished long drink, really delicious. He said, hey, are you in New York this Sunday by any chance? said, no, I'm in D.C. We've got friends in town. They're leaving Sunday morning. Why? He said, well, there's this music festival. There's a Kygo concert out in the Hamptons. And we've got VIP access to it. And it's going to be a really cool crew. And Long Drink is sponsoring it. And just thought it might be fun. And my first reaction was, is there any way you could get two tickets? Because if I show up to a Kygo concert without Adam, who is a Big Kygo fan. I like Kygo. I like his music. I enjoy a lot of his collaborations with, you know, huge artists, past and present. But I'm not a super fan. My husband is a super fan. And I told him, I believe my exact quote in the text was, if I were to do this without him, he might consider murdering me. (laughs) So he said, let me get back to you. Let me work on it. So the next day he said, I can get you guys both in. But we're finalizing the list, and we just need to know. So I said, yeah, we're doing it. I told Adam he was literally jumping up and down with excitement. He was so happy. He was texting his friends. So we drove from D.C. up to New York, parked in Manhattan, and then got a driver out to the Hamptons. Now, I had, prior to yesterday, never been, A, to a music festival— of any sort. I'd been to concerts, but never a music festival, not really my scene. B, I had never been to the Hamptons. I grew up in the New York area, never went to the Hamptons. Because generally, if you are a beach person in the New York area, you will typically either be a Jersey Shore person or a Hamptons person or Cape Cod people or have some other place, Outer Banks, North Carolina. There's a few other options. But generally, you go to one of these places, and that's your spot. And that was us. We were Cape Cod people. We almost never went down the shore, even though my mom grew up with summers down the shore. We didn't really do that. We'd always go to the Cape, never to the Hamptons. I'd never been out there, which is sort of wild. So I said, this is a cool opportunity. Get some long drink, meet some people. Some of the co-founders of the company from Finland were going to be there. A few other people that I wanted to meet. I could do something... Pretty great for Adam, and we've got our anniversary coming up. And I said, all right. So we did it, and I will say it was at the airport in West Hampton. So occasionally, like, jets would fly in or helicopters would fly overhead, but the music was so loud you could not hear the helicopter. That's how loud the music was. What I liked about the festival was it was not terribly crowded. I think it's because they had gotten us in this, like, VIP section. But you had this little couch. They had little couch areas outdoors, and then... Waiters and waitresses who would come and just refill whatever drinks you wanted. And they had food trucks. So there was a Greek food truck that had legitimately delicious gyros, and that was included in the price. So we had unlimited long drink. There were some tequila shots happening. There was beer. There was wine. And I was just making sure that I was drinking a huge amount of water the entire time as well. But, you know, to get into it and dance and sing along, like, I was definitely having some fun. It became a Sunday fun day, which I almost never do. And this is why we had gotten the driver, by the way. We'd gotten the car to and from the event because I said, you know, if I have a few drinks, I don't want to be driving. We ended up having such a great time. Everyone was great in this group. We all got along very well. We arrived just in time to see Zed perform. And Zed has a couple pretty big songs. Like, Meet Me in the Middle is... One of the big hits from Zedd. I will say it's a little strange to go to a concert for a DJ. Right? Because it's not really a live performance per se. They had a few elements of it. But a lot of it's just seeing like, you know, the pyrotechnics and the blasts of steam and the cool designs on the jumbotrons and that whole thing. And it was definitely a sensory experience and it was fun. The music was good. But it's not like you're seeing people singing or playing musical instruments, which is what I typically sort of associate with why you go to a concert. Instead of seeing a guy sort of like up on a stand pumping his fist as he presses play on a song. Right? Although he, it's more complicated than that. I'm not trying to diminish it. Obviously, it's a hugely popular thing because, I mean, there were thousands and thousands of people. At this concert, So Zed had a few songs that we knew and and had some fun remixes of, of some things. And then Kaigo was going to come on. He was the final big main act. But before he came out, something very unexpected happened. Someone was introduced, a local official out in Suffolk County in Long Island. And this person came out with a microphone onto the stage and started talking to the crowd. And I wasn't really sure, does this really happen at musical festivals where it's sort of like now let's hear from a local elected official or a government official. But they were raising money through this event for first responders and for Gold Star families. And he talked about how the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is coming up. Of course, Long Island and that whole community was devastated by 9-11, as were so many counties and towns all around the New York City area. He said we're just days away from the 20-year anniversary of this horrible attack. And he also mentioned what just happened in Afghanistan with the 13 troops who were killed. And he mentioned we can enjoy these types of events, this kind of fun here at home because of heroes like that. And he was shouting out individual first responder families and Gold Star families. And it was really moving And at first, I was sort of worried, are people going to respond well to this? Because, you know, you've got people, they've been sort of drinking all day. They want to see Kygo. They're there to have a good time. And then you've got someone up there with a microphone talking about 9-11 and, you know, the Afghanistan drawdown and uh, troops being killed. People were paying attention. It's not like everyone's just milling around. People were listening. There was really strong applause for some of these points. Big applause for the Gold Star families. Big cheers for this very important point that we enjoy the freedoms here because of the brave men and women who put their lives on the line to serve us. That got a huge ovation. There were chants breaking out of USA, which I was not expecting at the Kygo concert. I'll just be honest. But it happened. It was really cool. And it put things in perspective. Because part of me felt a little bit guilty being at something this fun, having been through the last two weeks of news cycles, and it's just been really dreary and really horrible and so sad and angering, and I've been on social media talking about it on the air, talking about it, writing at townhall.com, and then I was posting stuff on my social, oh, here I am, and we're at a concert, and isn't this fun, and I love this song, but you have to live your life, you have to appreciate the blessings in front of you, but I do think it's also incumbent to not lose sight of those who secure those liberties on your behalf, especially after the last week or two. And this moment, this brief set of remarks by this official in Suffolk County brought that home, brought the mood down a little bit, but not in like a buzzkill kind of way, but in a serious kind of way. And then out came Kygo, and it was just this little interlude that I did not see coming, but I was very gratified to see the response and the reception. That's how it should be. And then Kygo was great. I mean, so many hits, and I did a whole story on my Instagram. So if you want to follow me, I strongly recommend following me. Twitter is more political, Guy P. Benson. Instagram, much less political, almost never political. Also Guy P. Benson. And I have little snippets of various songs along the way. And then... Out of nowhere, like halfway through his set, Kygo brings onto the stage Jimmy Buffett. What? And Jimmy had his guitar and he actually performed and sang and played a guitar. I'm like, okay, I like this. I've always sort of wanted to go to a Jimmy Buffett concert. I'm not really a Parrothead. I'm not sure if I want to go to a whole Jimmy Buffett concert, but to see him in person, he's a legend, singing Margaritaville. Very different song than what you're used to hearing at these like what do they call it, EDM-type concerts, but who doesn't know that song? Everyone's shouting, Salt! Salt! Right? And it was it was really cool. And then we we took off a little bit early to beat the traffic back to the city because I did not want to be stuck in traffic at this airport just trying to get out, and we maybe did a little pit stop after all of our long drinks at McDonald's. So that came in clutch. And here I am in the city today. And... That is a very atypical Sunday for me, but it was awesome. I had a great time. I want to share the experience. Christine, less than a minute, you you just seem like you're chomping at the bit with questions.
0: I have so many questions <laughs> here and not enough time. Rapid fire. Okay. You were dancing?
2: I was doing a little bit of dancing.
0: Is Coachella next? No. Burning Man next? No. How was the traffic? You don't seem like someone that sits well in traffic.
2: We got out early, so it was fine.
0: Any celebrity sightings beside yourself?
2: Myself. <laughs> uh, no. Although I got to give a shout out to Mike from Long Drink. He hooked us up with some rainbow Long Drink koozies. He's a New Jersey representative for Long Drink. I'm like, I've got a friend in New Jersey that you need to know, but she might drink all of your product. Last I, question. Won- I won't name names though. Go ahead.
0: Where was my invite?
2: I had to pull strings to get my husband there. So sorry, Cookie.
0: You also could have...
2: Paid to come to the Kygo concert. You could have been in the cheap seats just being the woo girl.
0: Would you have recognized, like, would you have acknowledged if I was there the whole time? <laughs> I'd be like, Guy, it's me, it's in Cookie. Your full,
2: like, Woodstock getup. like, hey, I think that woman keeps trying to get your attention, Guy. Oh, I don't know who that is. Security, security, if we can just. <laughs> and it was great. It was fantastic. So I wanted to end the show on oh, know, it's a high note to Kirk street and Kygo. For a Monday, that's an awfully happy, happy hour, but we try to be serious here as well. It's a balance. It's a balancing act. We appreciate you being with us every single day. You've been listening to the best of The Guy Benson Show on this Labor Day.
6: Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think.
1: Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadShow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network.
0: I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.